biggest fun for a dragon song. When you're tired and you're grumpy and you want to shout. Pretend you're a dragon and let it out. Helping your kids manage their feelings now can help them as they grow. For more tips, go to first5california.com. Right. <laughs> I think it's time for our dragon song. When you're that clip was called the dragon song. <laughs> Today, can we talk about dragons? And what exactly does all of this stuff mean? Well, let me try to explain it to you. It's something else. <laughs> But before I get started, hello, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Um, I have an article I'd like to reference you for about ISIS. Um, you know, they use the name ISIS in Iraq also, right? ISIS, I-S-I-S. Um, there's a, um, and obviously, um, well, maybe not obvious to everybody, but... Um, the thing with ISIS is it's a CIA operation, okay? And um, there's an excellent article you can go read. I don't think after I've explained to you how the um, <laughs> how they set up the Ku Klux Klan. Um, so I'm not going to read the article about how they set up ISIS in Iraq. Um, I remember Obama used to call it ISIL, and ISIL is part of what ISIS all means. And um, anyhow, so the article is called ISIS in Iraq. A CIA NATO Dirty War Op, okay? And it's by William Engdahl, E-N-G-D-A-H-L. And it was from 2014 and redone on 2023. ISIS in Iraq, a CIA-NATO Dirty War Op. Yes, I agree with everything he said. ISIS, you know, they run around wearing black masks. I mean... <laughs> The sad part is, is that this is their murdering crew, okay? And this is, yes, all done by the CIA. So go read for yourself and decide for yourself. You may decide that, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. This can't be the CIA, not our lovely government. <laughs> okay, let's get to the subject at hand here, which is dragons. Um, I wanted to clear up some dragon issues because I've also been very confused by the symbolism of phoenix versus eagle because if you notice we have the bald eagle on the u.s deals and there's also the bird the phoenix which actually does relate to all this okay because i keep looking at this phoenix okay and i think a lot of people are calling the phoenix an eagle and eagle the phoenix so Let's try to clear that up today because I believe the word all means the same. And in some cases, the phoenix, as depicted on flags and things, looks like it has a taller, thinner neck than what they're saying is the eagle. But I think this whole phoenix eagle thing is just internet confusion 101. Um, they're both the same, but instead of saying that, I had to dig and dig and dig and they refer to them as different things. So let's get started here. But before I get started, um, there's a lot of things about the Frankfurt School that I was talking about. Um, you know, it had to do with the creation of racial offenses. 
continual change to create confusion, the teaching of sex and homosexuality to children, the undermine of schools and teachers' authority, well, putting their own teachers in there, right? Huge immigration to destroy identity, the promotion of excessive drinking, emptiness of churches, uh, I, I believe it's all done on behalf of the churches, but mute point, but anyway, dependency on the state <clears throat> or state benefits, control and dumbing down of media, <coughs> excuse me, um, encouraging the breakdown of the family um, and this abolish differences in education. And this has all been playing out exactly right in front of us right now, it's especially the egalitarianism part. And what is egalitarianism? I had to look it up. Um, it said, there was this quote I found, it said, the revolution won't happen with guns, rather it will happen incrementally, year by year, generation by generation. We will, this is them speaking, we will gradually infiltrate their educational institutions and their political offices, transforming them slowly into Marxist entities as we move toward universal egalitarianism. So I had to look up egalitarianism, and that is a belief or a principle that emphasizes human equality and human treatment in various aspects of life, such as social, political, and economic affairs. Egalitarianism may also advocate the removal of inequities among people and influence the development of different systems and movements. Yes, well, what are they doing now? They're saying, oh, well, let's pay reparations to the black people. Let's get everybody equal, right? So that's what that's all about. Um, and just one clip from this article, ISIS in Iraq, a CIA nation dirty war op, okay. For days now, since their dramatic June 10th taking a mausel, Western mainstream media have been filled with horror stories of the military conquest in Iraq of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria with the curious acronym ISIS. Isis as in the ancient Egyptian cult of the goddess of fertility and magic. The media picture being presented adds up less and less. Details leaking out suggest that Isis and the major military surge in Iraq and less so in neighboring Syria is being shaped and controlled out of Langley, Virginia and other CIA and Pentagon outposts as a next stage in spreading chaos in the world's second largest oil state, Iraq, as well as weakening the recent Syrian destabilizing efforts. So yeah, this, could, uh, this article is very interesting, and um, I encourage you to go read it because yes, of course, um, ISIS in Iraq is a CIA operation, and he's done an excellent job documenting it all. So. Okay, I also took a look at the dollar bills because the dollar has that S. What I was curious about, don't know the answer to it, but the, the U.S. dollar is the only monetary issue that has the S symbol, right? But what I did notice is that all the monetary symbols have lines drawn through them, okay? Um, the um, S has a uh, line through it. The euro has like a C letter with two lines. So some of them have two lines and some have one line. Don't know what that means. Um, 
it's there was one explanation was it said the dollar symbol itself is said to be derived from the previously used PS, which represented the Mexican peso, Spanish piasta, or pieces of eight. People eventually began to write the P over the S, then a single line over the S, creating the dollar symbol. Whether that's true or not, don't really know. Okay, so I was looking up symbols and eagles and all these different things, okay? So, according to their historians, um, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams failed to come up with an official seal for the United States, okay? And um, the popular story surrounding Ben Franklin and the eagle is that he wanted the turkey instead, but that's not entirely true. Um, and Franklin actually proposed the rattlesnake. In 1775, Franklin proposed the country use, the, the country use a rattlesnake as a national symbol in a letter later attributed to him that was published in the Pennsylvania Journal. See, this is where I'm getting to today, that I think that all these symbols with these um, eagles or phoenixes or um, mystical symbols like dragons and stuff, I think they started putting dragons all over because, well, it would probably be kind of alarming to most people if, let's say, instead of those dragons, they put snakes. <laughs> So, anyway, I'll walk you through how I got here, okay? And then you will have to decide for yourself. Um, because they decided to, um, Franklin suggested a biblical scene of Moses and Pharaoh. Jefferson suggested a scene of children of Israel, why, why Israel, right? And two Anglo-Saxon figures. Adams wanted Hercules. Eventually, elements from each of the three committees were combined to create the green seal, and it included the bald eagle. They had considered the golden eagle. Now, the golden eagle is used in some places, okay? Um, they turned down using a golden eagle, but as a new nation made up of former Europeans who saw several other companies use the golden eagle, they gave up the notion. And... Um, they have specific ways they have this eagle looking, okay? The bald, the American, they call it the American bald eagle. And I believe it's the only eagle. The bald eagle is only in America, okay? <laughs> the American bald eagle has always faced the olive branch in its right talon. It was the eagle on the seal of the president who used to look the other way. And here we go. The eagle was not first a phoenix. Both an eagle and a phoenix appeared together in the design suggested by the Third Great Seal Committee. And the phoenix was an appropriate positive symbol, emblematic of the expiring liberty of Britain, revived by her descendants in America. Interesting wording, right? Because this phoenix is rising out of the ashes, right? So. The phoenix was an appropriate positive symbol, emblematic of the expiring liberty of Britain, revived by her descendants in America. Congress approved this Charles Thompson's eagle design the same day he submitted it on June the 20th, 1782. 
there was no great debate supposedly um yeah well the eagle uh, i was looking into what does an eagle mean okay eagle any of many large large heavy beaked big-footed birds of prey belonging to the family I can't even pronounce it. In general, an eagle is any bird of prey. And it's interesting that the eagle, which they're pushing as being part of the United States logo, is a bird of prey, right? <laughs> an eagle may represent a vulture in build and flight characteristics, but has a fully feathered, often crusted head and strong feet equipped with great curved talons. A further difference is in foraging habits. Eagles mostly, wow, this is something else, okay. <laughs> A further difference is in foraging habits. Eagles mostly subside on live prey. They are too ponderous for effective aerial pursuit but try to surprise and overwhelm their prey on the ground. Like owls, they decapitate their kills. Because of their strength, eagles have been a symbol of war and imperial power since Babylonian times. Their likeness is found on Greek and Roman ruins, co coins, and medals. Eagles are monogamous. They mate for life and use the same nest each year. They tend to nest in inaccessible places, incubating a small clutch of eggs for six to eight weeks. The young mature slowly reaching adult plumage in the third or fourth year. If you're interested, there's somebody on YouTube that has a bald eagle nest they watch <laughs> on their video. <laughs> Okay, so now now that we got the eagle sorted out, okay. Before, okay, the um, the um, excuse me, the, we have the American bald eagle that we know of, okay. But before we had that, they had the phoenix, right? But the phoenix is a mythological bird, okay? So prior to the eagle, we had what they call the phoenix, which I'll be getting into, right? Um, but before the phoenix, you'll hear them talk about the Benu bird, B-E-N-U bird. It's really important to get these words straight because I've been like spinning in circles for a while trying to figure out, well, does a phoenix mean an eagle? You know, all those kind of stuff. So anyway, so the myth of the Egyptian Benu bird, which was usually depicted as a heron, could have come, see, could have come from a new species of heron found in recent excavations in this area. When the bones were reconstructed, it was found to be a large heron, larger than any now living. It is speculated that the Egyptians may have seen this large bird only as an extremely rare visitor or from tales 
or from tales of it from travelers who had trading expeditions to the Arabian Seas. Another possibility is the Goliath Heron, now found among other places on the coast of the Red Sea, by which may have been more widespread in ancient times. The Greeks knew the Egyptian Binu bird as the phoenix, a legendary bird without parents and offspring. It nurtured itself on sunlight and sea spray. Brilliant in appearance, its feathers were gold, red, and white. Its eyes were green as the sea. A semi-immortal being, the phoenix had a lifespan of 500 years, and when about to die, it drew new life from the primal elements of fire and water and was born again. It would build its nest in the form of a funeral pyre, P-Y-R-E, and a single clap of its wings would ignite it. Then when consumed by the flames, a young phoenix would arise from its own ashes. The Greeks considered the appearance of the phoenix as a herald of important events to come. It is thought by many that the myths surrounding the phoenix were a wait a second here were a misunderstanding. <laughs> Let's see, this stuff gets really hard to boil down into reality. Okay, so. It is thought by many that the myths surrounding the phoenix were a misunderstanding of the Egyptian myth of the Binu bird. It is possible that the legend comes from what Herodotus wrote of the Binu bird. And he, the quote is, I have not seen a phoenix my, myself except in paintings, for it is very rare in the country or at least they say in Heliopolis, only at intervals of 500 years on the occasion of the death of the parent bird. I wonder if this is where they get that number five from, that right, five, five stars and all that. To judge by the paintings, its plumage is a partly golden, partly red, and in shape and size, it is exactly like an eagle. There is a story about the phoenix. It brings its parent in a lump of myra all the way from Arabia and buries the body in the temple of the sun. To perform the feat, the bird first shapes some, it's called M-Y-R-R-H, into a sort of egg as big as it finds by testing that it can carry. Then it hollows the lump out, puts its father inside and smears more Mary over the opening. The egg-shaped lump is in just the same weight as it was originally. Finally, it is carried by the bird to the temple of the sun in Egypt. In Melanie's count, a small worm appeared from the body of the phoenix the metaphor, that metaphors into a bird, thus the phoenix was reborn. So, that's the story of the Bainu bird. So you, you hear about the Bainu bird and the phoenix. So just look at it this way. Bainu bird would be, I'm assuming, remember this is all mythological, right? This is all, so that would be pre-phoenix, okay. So then I was also looking at dragons, okay. Dragons all over the place, right? 
the likely origin of most dragon myths came from China's love for dragons can be traced back 5,000 to 7,000 years, possibly more. In Mandarin, dragons are called Long, L-O-N-G, or Lung, L-U-N-G, which is a bit ironic in English given that Chinese dragons are portrayed as extra-long reptiles with snake-like bodies, four-clawed feet, a lion-like mane, and a giant mouth with long whiskers and impressive teeth. What's less known about Chinese dragons, however, is that some of them are also portrayed as derived from turtles or fish. Either way, the standard symbolism of Chinese dragons is that they are powerful and often benevolent beings. They are viewed as spirits or gods with control over water, be it in the form of rain, typhoons, rivers, or floods. Dragons in China have always been closely associated with their emperors and the power in general. As such, dragons in China symbolize strength, authority, good fortune, and heaven in addition to being just water spirits. Successful and strong people were often compared with dragons while incapable and underachieving ones with worms. So <laughs> the smart people, these were dragons, and the other ones were worms. <laughs> Another important symbolism is that dragons and phoenixes are often viewed as the yin and yang. And here we go, okay. Or as the male and female. You notice everything about this is dual. So they're saying that dragons and phoenixes can be viewed, can be viewed, okay. The union between the two mythological creatures is often viewed at the starting point of human civilization. And just like the emperor is often associated with the dragon, the empress was typically identified with the Fang Hong, F-E-N-G-H-U-A-N-G, a mythical bird like the phoenix. Okay, so the emperor is often associated with a dragon, and the empress was this Fang Hong bird, which is a mythical bird like, see, this is just a, cut and paste operation now, isn't it? So this is what they're doing in China. Okay, as China has been the dominant political power in East Asia, the Chinese dragon myth has influenced most other Asian culture, most other Asian cultures dragon myths as well. See, it's funny how these myths have all just spread to these specific places, right? The myths just happen to be the red, the color of Saturn. <laughs> and gold <laughs> and dragons like snakes with feet <laughs> okay um, so the Chinese dragon myth has been influenced by others Korean and Vietnamese dragons for example are very similar to Chinese ones and bear almost the exact same features and symbolism with few exceptions well, that saved the graphics department some money now, didn't it? <laughs> then we have the Hindu dragons. The dragon depicted in Hindu temple. This was just a list I pulled up of different dragons. Um, 
Most people believe that there are no dragons in Hinduism, but that's not exactly true. Most Hindu dragons are shaped like giant serpent and often don't have legs. This leads some to conclude that these aren't dragons, but just giant snakes. Indian dragons are often cloaked with mongooses and were frequently portrayed with multiple beastly heads. They also sometimes have feet and other limbs in some depictions. One of the most prominent dragon myths in Hinduism is that of Yurita, V-R-I-T-R-A, also known as Ahi, A-H-I. It is a major figure in the Vedic religion. Unlike Chinese dragons, which were believed to bring rainfall, Rita was a deity of drought. He used to block the course of rivers during the drought season and was the main advisory of the thunder god, god Indra, who eventually slew him. The myth of Vitra's death is central in the Book of India in ancient Sanskrit myths. The Naga also deserves a special mention here since they too are viewed as dragons by most Asian, most Asian cultures. That's spelled N-A-G-A. Nagas were often portrayed as half men and half snakes, or just snake-like dragons. They were believed to typically live in undersea palaces, littered with pearls and jewels that were sometimes viewed as evil, while other times as neutral or even benevolent. From Hinduism, the Naga rapidly spread to Buddhism, Indonesia, and Malay myths, as well as Japan and even China. Buddhist dragons. Dragons in Buddhism are derived from two main sources, the Indian Naga and the Chinese Long. What's interesting here, however, is that Buddhism incorporated these dragon myths into their own beliefs and made dragons a symbol of enlightenment. But what this is saying to me, at least, if dragons are a symbol of enlightenment and dragons really mean snakes and snakes really mean evil, see what I'm saying? See how they get us to actually worship what we should be kind of running away from? <laughs> so, um, the famous phrase, Meeting the dragon in the cave comes from Chan, where it's a metaphor for facing one's deepest fears. Meeting the dragon in the cave, okay. There's also the famous folktale of the true dragon. In it is a man who loves, reveres, and studies dragons. He knows all dragon lore and has decorated his home with statues and paintings of dragons. So when one dragon heard about this other person, he thought, how lovely that this man appreciates us. It would surely make him happy to meet a true dragon. The dragon went to the man's house, but the man was sleeping. The dragon coiled by his bed and slept with him so he could greet Ye when he woke up. Once the man woke, however, he was terrified by the dragon's long teeth and shiny scales, so he attacked the big serpent with a sword. The dragon flew away and never returned to the dragon-loving man. The meaning of the true, the true dragon story is that enlightenment is easy to miss even when it, we study it and search for it. 
and the famous Buddhist monk Dogen explained it. I beseech you, noble friends, in learning through experience, do not become so accustomed to images that you are dismayed by the true dragon. Japanese dragons. Boy, they sure share a lot of this stuff, don't they now? Very revealing enemies. They certainly seem to like the same kind of mythology. Japanese dragons. Um, as with other East Asian cultures, the Japanese dragon myths were a mix. <laughs> they were the mix of the Indian Naga and the Chinese long dragons, plus some myths and legends native to the culture itself. In the case of Japanese dragons, they too were water spirits and deities, but many of the native Japanese dragons were more centered around the sea rather than lakes and mountain rivers. Many indigenous Japanese dragon myths featured multi-headed and multi-tailed giant sea dragons, either with or without limbs. Many Japanese dragon myths also had dragons transitioning between reptile and human form, as well as other deep-sea reptile-like monsters that could also be categorized as dragons. <laughs> as, for, as far as the inherent symbolism of Japanese dragons, they weren't as black and white as dragons in other cultures. Depending on the particular myth, Japanese dragons could be good spirits, evil sea kings, trickster gods and spirits, giant monsters, or even the center of tragic and or romantic stories. Then we had the Middle Eastern dragons. Moving away from East Asia, the dragon myths of the ancient Middle Eastern cultures also deserve a mention. They are rarely talked about, but they mostly likely played a huge role in the formation of European dragon myths. Ancient Babylonian dragon myths are in contention with Chinese dragons for the oldest dragon myths in the world, with many of them going thousands of years in the past. So Chinese and Babylonians are the ones that go the furthest back. Okay. One of the most famous Babylonian dragon legends is that of Tiamat, T-I-A-M-A-T, a serpentine but also winged monster deity which threatened to destroy the world and return it to its primordial state. Tiamat was defeated by the god Marduk, a legend that became the cornerstone myth of many Mesopotamian cultures dating back 2,000 years. Hold on one second. I gotta get up here and get him moving along here and hopefully not disconnect what I'm doing here. Oh, right when I go to get up, he walks back. Okay, so let me keep going here. Okay, um. You okay? We're having a really hard time in here. If you're wondering why I would say that, if you're just tuning in, go look at my show about their murdering us in our own home. Oh, speaking of that, I'll give you a quick update. Um, I said that I would share good, bad, or ugly, right? Well, this is kind of ugly. <laughs> not in a, a kind of, it's not going to be scary or anything, okay? But I've had to kind of, um, when, when different things have happened, because the radiation that I'm undergoing is undergoing now has been constant for a number of years now, right? So it's different symptomatically 
than somebody who, let's say, goes to a doctor to get radiation to treat cancer, right? Because that they do, like, how many times per week for how many weeks, and then it stops, right? But because I've been ongoing receiving radiation through the smart meter, um, things have been happening, and um, <laughs> I'm not always cool and calm, but nor, nor do I run around acting crazy, but, uh, but, uh, <coughs> your way. I'm getting up. I'm getting up. I'm getting up. Okay. So in case you're wondering, well, why don't I just close the door? Well, I can't close the door because when I close the door, it, well, Go listen to that show. Anyway, so I don't have any way of closing myself off from noise, so. Okay, so anyway, so it's been cold, so I've been um, not showering or I've been wearing socks, right? Because I'm very much end of life, right? So um, when you're end of life, you're not exactly thinking about, oh yeah, I, bet, I better get in the shower today. Um, <laughs> so because it's been so cold, I basically have been living in and sleeping in, you know, socks and, you know, that kind of stuff and not taking them off, right? So I took my socks off the day before yesterday because it's now spring here and my toes are black. And I thought, holy crap, what does that mean, right? <laughs> so I just let it sink into my head and then I went about my day and then I realized that here's what it is. For some reason, radiation goes after our legs before our leg before our arms which is kind of interesting and I remember that a couple of things when the people in Japan got hit they talked about their extremities fingers and stuff going black and then losing them there's a word for the going black part but anyway so um, and then also the people in Vietnam I believe it's the second generation children being born are showing problems with their legs. And what's going on with the legs? The legs are, they're being born with just like spindly like legs, like almost like just like bones without skin on them, kind of skinny legs. Um, so for some reason, and I'm just making this 
observation because hopefully somebody who knows more you know there's people in different pockets of the world like in Vietnam and stuff that are studying this stuff so my observation based on what they've been saying is that for some reason it's going into my feet first okay because it's entered into all of my organs so now it seems to be coming in through my feet and the only thing I noticed the other day was the um, my toes are and I'll put photos over at the website, Psychopath in Your Life. Click on um, blog, B-L-O-G. Give me a few days to do that. But anyway, so so then I thought, well, that's kind of weird because for the last couple of months, I've been having trouble walking. And so because I'm wearing socks, <laughs> I didn't notice anything. So yeah, the radiation actually started out first attacking the underneath part of my feet, which I didn't see any of this having been running around wearing socks and stuff the last month or so and not showering because it's too cold in here so anyway so yeah I, I don't know why it happened in Vietnam with those kids legs um, why does the radiation travel from our legs up I don't know I can feel my hands start to get weird but the, but they're not getting purple or anything like my feet are but anyway onward and upward here so um, um so these dragons, okay. Um, so we were talking about the Tiamat, T-I-A-M-A-T, which is the most famous Babylonian dragon, okay. A serpentine, but also winged monster deity, which threatened to des destroy the world and return it to its primordial state. <coughs> Tiamat was defeated by the god Marduk, a legend <coughs> Excuse me, a legend that became the cornerstone myth of many Mesotopian cultures dating back 2,000 years BCE. And the, uh, I, I think I said part of that earlier, but I don't remember. But anyway, so what it does too is it gets your brain a little bit fuzzy, so I'll be wandering along and, and think that things are pretty clear and then they're not. But th th this show is clear. It just took me a little bit longer to get it clear in my head. But anyway, so... In the Arabian Peninsula, there were also water rain dragons and giant winged serpents. They were usually viewed as evil elemental monsters or more morally neutral cosmic forces. In most other Mesopotamian dragon myths, these serpentine creatures were also evil and chaotic and had to be stopped by heroes and gods. From the Middle East, this representation of dragons has likely transferred to the Balkans and the Mediterranean, but has also played a part in early Judeo-Christian myths and legends. And then we also had um, European dragons. Um... European or Western dragons differ quite a bit from East. Asian dragons, both in their appearance, powers, and symbolism. Still, with reptilian origins, European dragons typically aren't as slender as the traditional Chinese long dragons, but instead have wider and heavier bodies, two or four legs, and two massive wings on which they could fly. 
They also weren't water deities or spirits, but instead could often breathe fire. Many European dragons also had multiple heads, and most of them were evil monsters that needed to be slain. Eastern European dragons. Eastern European dragons predate those from the western part of the continent, as the dragon myths were imported from both the Middle East as well as from India and Central Asia. As such, Eastern European dragons come in a variety of types. The Greek dragon, for example, were evil winged monsters that traditionally protected their lairs and treasures from traveling heroes. The Lenier Hydra from the Herculean Mist is also a type of multi-headed dragon and Python is a four-legged snake-like dragon who killed the god Apollo. In most Slavic myths, there are several different types of dragons. So these one dragons were malevolent serpentine monsters who would terrorize villages. They would usually crawl out of lakes and caves and were the subject and chief antagonists of folk stories in many Slavic cultures. The more famous type of Slavic dragon, however, is Zemi, Z-M-E-Y, which is also one of the main templates for most Western European dragons. Zemis have the classic European dragon body, but they are sometimes depicted as multi-headed. Depending on the country of origin, Zemis could be either evil or benevolent. In most northern and eastern Slavic cultures, Zemis were evil and were meant to be slain by the hero for enslaving a village or demanding virginal sacrifices. Most Slavic Zemis were also given Turkic names because of the centuries-long conflict between the Ottoman Empire and most Europeans. And I think this is next to the last one. Um, boy, a lot of dragons, aren't they? Western European dragons. Um, several of the template. See here again. This is just. I I think it's cut and paste. Of most modern fantasy literature and pop culture dragons, Western European dragons are very well known. They are mostly derived from Sla the Slavic Zemis and Greek treasure protecting dragons, but they were often given new twists as well. Some dragon myths have the giant reptiles guarding piles of treasures. In others, they were intelligent and wise beings giving advice to the heroes. In Britain, they were W-Y-V-E-R-N-S, who were flying dragons with only two hind legs, which tormented towns and villages, and the sea serpent Wymans with no limbs that crawled on land like giant snakes. In Nordic legends, the sea serpent is viewed as a dragon, a creature with great significance of the apocalypse. This happens when it grows so large that it can bite its own tail while circling around the world like an hourglass. O-U-R-O-B-O-R-U-S. In most Western European countries, however, Dragons were often used as family crests 
and symbols of power and royalty, especially around the Middle Ages. Now, what do we see here? We see dragons over all their crests, now don't we? Uh, wealth, excuse me, Welsh mythology, the red dragon symbolizes the Welsh, defeating a white dragon itself symbolizing the Sax, Saxons, meaning England. And then they have some North American dragons. Most people rarely think about it, but natives of North America also had a lot of dragon myths in their cultures. The reason they aren't well known nowadays is that the European settlers didn't really mix with the Native Americans or engage in much cultural exchange. It's not completely clear how much of the dragon myths and legends of the Native Americans were brought in from Asia and how much they created while in the New World. Regardless, the indigenous American dragons resemble East Asian dragons in quite a few aspects. They too have mostly serpent features with their elongated bodies and few or no legs. They were usually horned and they were also viewed as ancient spirits or deities, only here their nature was more morally ambiguous. As with other Native American spirits, dragon and serpent spirits controlled many forces of nature and would often meddle in the physical world, especially when called upon. These native dragon myths together with the European myths the settlers brought with them, however, make for quite a significant presence of dragon-related legends in North America. Boy, I see how many more dragon stories I have here. Um, Um, there are just, um, I'm going to skip over some of these. Um, there's also African dragons. Okay. Africa has some of the most famous dragon myths in the world. Benin, B-E-N-I-N dragons, or Ido Wedo in West Africa, were rainbow serpents from the mythology. They were low or spirits and deities of wind, water, rainbows, fire, and fertility. They were mostly portrayed as giant serpents and were both worshipped and feared. So I think, um, however, Egyptian dragon and serpent myths are the most famous from the African continent. Aphos, or Apep, A-P-E-P, was a giant serpent of chaos in Egyptian mythology. Even more famous than Apophis, A-P-O-P-H-I-S, however, is Ayuboros, O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S, the giant tail-eating serpent, often portrayed with several legs. From Egypt, Egypt, the Ouroboros or Euroboros made its way into Greek mythology and from there into alchemy. It is typically interpreted to symbolize eternal life, life's cynical, cyclical nature of death and rebirth. They also have drags, dragons in Christianity. Most people don't imagine dragons when they think of the Christian faith, but dragons are quite common in both the Old Testament and later Christianity. In the Old Testament, as well as in Judaism and is Islam, 
The monstrous Leviathan and Bahumut are basically in the original Arabic dragon. Bahumut, which is B-A-H-A-M-U-T, kind of sounds like that Baphomet, doesn't it? A giant winged cosmic sea serpent. In later years of Christianity, dragons were often portrayed as symbols of paganism and heresy and were shown trampled under the hoofs of Christian knights or skewed skewered on their spears. Probably the most famous myth is that of St. George, who is commonly depicted wait a second here. <coughs> Excuse me. Probably the most famous myth of that of St. George, who is commonly depicted killing a slithering dragon in the Christian legend, St. George was a militant saint who visited a village plagued by an evil dragon. St. George told the villagers that he would kill the dragon if they all converted into Christianity. After the villagers did so, St. George promptly went ahead and killed the monster. The myth of St. George is believed to come from the story of a Christian soldier from modern-day Turkey, who burned down a Roman temple and slew many of the pagan worshippers there. For that deed, he was later martyred. This reportedly happened on the 3rd century AD, and the saint started being... And the saint started being portrayed killing a dragon in Christian iconography in Ural several centuries later. A dragon is a mythical creature that is believed to spit fire and have the ability to fly. Dragons are also storied to be powerful and to symbolize strength. In battle shields and flags, they have historically been used to intimidate opponents. And the, today there's a few countries that have dragons on their flags, and that would be Bhutan, Wales, and Malta. Interesting, huh? Um, Malta, right? Back at Malta again. So, um, and then they go on to, uh, I'll, I'll describe the Welsh flag. Um, the Welsh flag has a red dragon and is prominently displayed behind the white and green colors. Historically, it represents the times of King Henry VII, who used the dragon as a battle symbol during the Battle of Bosworth Field. The Romans, yeah, these people are just the Romans all over again, aren't they? The Romans are believed to have brought the dragon symbol with them during their occupation of Britain. Ding, ding, ding. In addition, it was the symbol of the monarchy and other ancient leaders during the Romano-British era. The symbol was not widely used in Wales during this time since it represented the British authority and was used in the coat of arms and by the armies of the English crown. So yeah, a very close look at the Maltese flag. It ha the Mal Malta flag has kind of a sneaky looking little one you have to kind of look for. Um, and uh, then I also looked at um, flags with dragons. Um, um, flag of Bhutan has a really cool looking dragon on it. Then we have the flag of Wales. And then um, 
They all look a little different. Um, Lithuania has a unicorn and a griffin. So many mythical things on all of these things, right? You had to kind of wonder why. Um, Tuscany, Italy has a Paganus, P-E-G-A-S-U-S, on their flag. It's a flying horse. Atlanta, Georgia has a phoenix rising in the south on their flag. Poland has a griffin. That's that, well, look up what a griffin is. And Japan has a ping, a mythological giant fish. It's called a ping, P-E-N-G. Uh, Hong Kong has a, um, from 1959 to 1997, they had um, lions and stuff on there. Um, Tibet has um, two snow lions on a rising sun. Okay, so let's talk about phoenixes. Let me see how I'm doing on time here. Um, okay, let's talk about phoenixes. Um, the phoenix is an immortal bird associated with Greek mythology um, that cyclically regenerates or is otherwise born again. There's also a young person I'd like you to go watch their channel. The name is Whisper Jack. W-H-I-S-P-E-R Jack. J-A-C-K. I think it's all one word. But what he's doing is he's going through all of the um, documented photos in this country from different years. And because the U.S. government sent around people to take pictures of things. So he's actually going through actually documented things, unlike those Tataria people, which are just kind of like, I don't know, going over the same old pictures again. But So in all these pictures that he's showing, they all show a phoenix there. Phoenix. He'll be going through all these different parts of the country, like he'll be in California looking at this building, and then oddly enough, there's this phoenix right there, right? So yeah, they really like this phoenix thing. And when you go to look for the phoenix slash eagle sim symbology, it just gets really crazy, okay? So, um, um, the origin of the phoenix has been attributed to ancient Egypt and later 19th century scholars, but other scholars think the Egyptian texts may have been influenced by classical folklore. Over time, the phoenix motif spread and gained gained a variety of new associates so so um, and they said they to the retelling and transmission of the phoenix motif started getting retold okay over time extending beyond its origins the phoenix could variously symbolize renewal in general as well as the sun time empire Christ, Mary, virginity, the exceptional man, and certain aspects of Christian life. So, some scholars have claimed that it may be present, the mythological phoenix motif, as a symbol of Christ's resurrection. You know, rising from the ashes. Any of that true? I don't have a clue. So, um, the modern English word phoenix entered the English language from Latin, later reinforced by French. The word first entered the English language by way of a borrowed of the English of Phoenix from Old English Phoenix. 
Okay. Um, the Greek word is first. The, this is interesting because they have that animal called the griffin, right? And they think that it came from that. The word is probably borrowed. Anyway, this just gets a little bit too crazy here. But anyway, the word the word phoenix has been around, and um, classic discourse on the subject of the phoenix attributes a potential origin of the phoenix to ancient Egypt. So yeah. Um, so it's a great rarity. Um, so yeah, so they have the phoenix, and then they have, before they have the phoenix and the, all the Egyptian stuff that we're talking about, other bird, the bayou bird. Um, but let me scroll down here because um, phoenix in ancient Greece. The Egyptian phoenix was said to be as large as an eagle with brilliant scarlet, yes, and then um, it often pops up in times of tragedy as a sign of hope that things will get better. The phoenix can also be seen as a symbol of immortality because it is said to live for 500 to 1,000 years before reincarnating into a new phoenix. It's no wonder this mythical bird has captured our imagination for so long. So are we on the verge of some Phoenix deal right now? Possibly, right? Um, who is this? Um, because the Phoenix symbol, deconstruction, rebirth, and renewal. The Phoenix is also consistent as an awesome being that is large in structure and wingspan and undergoes differential versions of destruction, rebirth, and renewal in its never-ending life cycle. Um, the, this mystic, mystical creature has been around um, the Phoenix symbolism, eternal life, but there are variations on the mythos about why this bird dies out every few hundred years, only to be reborn again through fire. And fire is their favorite thing, right? So, um, no matter how many times we burst into flames, we can always rise from the ashes. The phoenix symbolism is representative of the phoenix's circular cycle. It is an omen for what may be coming your way, whether that is positive or negative events. We should take this as an opportunity to prepare ourselves. Okay. And I've already talked about this, so let me scroll down here. Um, but, you know, it, they say that there's phoenix symbolism in almost every culture around the world. Now, why would that be unless they were all related, right? And let me scroll down because I've already gone through all of these. Um, it, phoenix in Islamic, phoenix in Hindu, blah, 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 blah. So phoenix is everywhere, okay? Okay. Um, and then they also have the phoenix spirit totem. Um, if you look at all these mythological people, all these um, tarot people and stuff, um, people are doing a lot of phoenix um, tattoos and stuff. I would I would caution against doing that because um, 
this is what I looked at what these um, I was always kind of suspicious of the new age people and I wasn't really sure why but now I certainly know why right because they're getting us to use keywords and stuff right okay uh, the Phoenix the Phoenix is also a popular and good this is what they say they, they say it's a good symbolism okay the Phoenix is also a popular and good symbol symbolism in dreams it typically appears to those who are undergoing major changes and transitions in their lives since it represents rebirth to a higher level the Phoenix will appear as an omen for what's ahead um, yeah um, is the Phoenix really a bird the Phoenix is not a real bird it has its origin in ancient Greek folklore what does a Phoenix represent the Phoenix represents eternity or foreverness another symbolism is immortality it emerges from the ashes a new bird better than its old self the new reincarnated self is better equipped to pursue its mission again and this cycle of renewal rebirth and destruction goes on and on uh, is the Phoenix good or even evil the Phoenix is often seen as a positive symbol due to its ability to rise from the ashes however the Phoenix can also be seen as a symbol of death and destruction due to its association with fire in some cultures the Phoenix is seen as both good and evil and is said to represent the duality of human nature what does a Phoenix feather symbolize the Phoenix the Phoenix symbolism is frequently shown as having a long tail and a silver and blue plume of feathers on its head the Phoenix feather is said to also be a symbol of hope due to its connection with the Phoenix bird okay so how did I finally stumble upon this Phoenix and this Eagle business well okay here was how I did it because I was looking at all of these maps and stuff uh, excuse me flags and the ones that had the double-headed eagles as they described them appeared to me to look like a double-headed Phoenix okay uh, so then I found this piece and then it made sense okay the double-headed eagle is probably the most easily recognizable Masonic symbol in the world even more important than the square and compass rule they look like two eagles but they are not they are the Phoenix bird of ancient Egypt and when I could because I was going through the stuff for days I kept these people they kept inverting words and stuff I kept thinking is it an eagle or is it a Phoenix right <laughs> So now we're down to what it is okay during the 18th century the double-headed eagle was used in higher degrees in France as the emblem of the Kadosh K-A-D-O-S-H degree I guess that's Kadosh degree in Freemason okay during the establishment of the Council of Emperors of the East and West in Paris it's speculated but not certain that the Scottish Rite, you read a lot about the Scottish Rite being the ones who started the Freemasons in the United States, okay? 
It's speculated, but not certain, that the Scottish Rite adopted the double-headed eagle as their emblem, not only for its affiliation with strength and power, but for each eagle head to represent one head inclined to the east to guard any and all who might approach from that direction, and the other head guarding the west for a like purpose. And that Scottish Rite thing also, remember, um, oh, the um, Civil War flag was supposedly um, designed after the Scottish Rite. Um, a Scottish Rite, as Scottish Rite Freemasons, we display our pride in the fraternity by wearing Masonic symbols, like the square and compass, the double-headed eagle. Um, so yeah, they put that double-headed eagle all over the place. So that double-headed eagle is, here, here's, here's, here's why they do this, okay? I found this thing that finally <laughs> unleashed my brain, okay? <laughs> there was this book I found called Magic Symbols, okay, by a person called Frederick Goodman. It said, the true magic symbol is an image which hides an inner meaning. This meaning is usually cunningly hidden behind a form which most people think they can understand immediately. Like, you, you, you think you saw that eagle, right? But really, it was the, <laughs> the phoenix. The phoenix. <coughs> all, this is all just a big trick of words, right? Okay, so, examining these Masonic symbols reveals the cunning hidden messages, hidden meanings. Then compare them with known satanic symbols so you can easily see from whence Freemason receives her supernatural insight and her spiritual light. The double-headed eagle is probably the most easily recognizable Masonic symbol of the world. It looks like two eagles, but it's not. The oh, this, and this is where we got this from, okay? Because there was, there is an eagle, but, but, but really the words are interchangeable. Okay, this, this, is how it, this is how my brain was like flipping back and forth for a few days over this. So. It says, the current presidential seal has an eagle on it. The eagle replaced the phoenix, which was the original national bird in 1841 as a national bird. The phoenix had been a brotherhood symbol since ancient Egypt. The phoenix was adopted by the founding form fathers for use on the reverse of the first official seal of the United States under a design. Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, this guy, um, among the ancients, a fabulous bird called the phoenix is described by earlier writers in size and shape it resembles the eagle but with certain differences the body of the phoenix is one covered with glossy purple feathers and the plumes in its tail are alternately blue and red the head of the bird is light in color and about its neck is a circle of golden plumage at the back of its back the phoenix has a crest of feathers of brilliant color. The phoenix, it is said, lives for 500 years, and at its death, its body opens, and the new 
born phoenix emerges. Because of this symbolism, the phoenix is generally regarded as representing immortality and resurrection. The phoenix is one sign of the secret order of the ancient world and of the initiative of those orders, for it was common to refer to one who had been accepted into the temples as a man twice born or reborn. Wisdom confers a new life, and those who become wise are born again. Get it? Born again, Christian? And this phoenix thing is all about born again, right? Um, and then I had this quote that I found. Um, so, because President Bush was um, talking about being born again, um, okay, uh, in 1988, when George Bush was on the presidential campaign trail, Baba Wawa, I'm sorry, Barbara Walters interviewed him. She asked him a question that caught him off guard. Barbara asked George if he was a Christian. Bush literally stumbled, looked down for a moment, and answered, If by being a Christian, you ask if I am born again, then yes, I am a Christian. Bush parsed his words carefully unlike a born-again Christian. So yeah, interesting how he parsed those words, isn't it? Um, so back to the Phoenix bird. Listen to the explanation given by the radical feminist Barbara Walker in her book, Now is the Dawning. Egyptians believed that the Phoenix was the representative of a god who rose to heaven in the form of a morning star like Luke Lucifer after his fire immolation of death and rebirth. So this Barbara Walker person said that Egyptians believed that the phoenix was the representation of a god who rose to heaven in the form of a morning star like Lucifer after his fire emulating of death and birth. Well, obviously these people worship Satan, right? So that would make a great deal of sense that they would be into this um, phoenix deal, right? <clears throat> the phoenix, or Bunu, or B-U-N-N-O, is believed to be a divine bird going back to Egypt, destroys itself in flames, and arises from the earth. Most occultists believe that phoenix is a symbol of Lucifer, who was cast down in flames, and who will one day rise triumphantly. <clears throat> so, um, they said this belief relates to the raising of Hiram. Oh, shoot. Wait a second here. Hiram, I'll be the, the Masonic Christ, whatever that means. Um, let me see here. To prevent most people from associating the Masonic Eagle with the ancient Phoenix, Freemasons changed the Phoenix to an Eagle and began to refer to it as an eagle. See how it all worked? They just changed it, right? So they started talking about this phoenix being an eagle. These people are very, very tricky. Okay, so, um, yeah, because look at some of these flags, okay? Like the Serbian flag. Um, Serbia, Albania, and Monterrego, <coughs> three neighboring countries in the Balkans, have two-headed eagles on their flags. And if you look at those flags, just to learn to train your eyes, those, what they're calling eagles, which we now know are really phoenixes, right? 
their necks are very long, okay? And between, <laughs> well, my, my point here is, is that obviously everybody is working together. Or why would they have all of their flags? Why would they have all of this stuff coded together? Well, one other explanation is this, is that they maybe all agreed to work together when they all came on the game board, right? Maybe they came on the game board and um, the uh, main psychopaths, the royal actors from Italy, the Romans, went around and convinced the other countries to get on board with them, right? And come against the rest of us. Well, I would have to say that that would likely be their strategy, right? Because there's not enough of them to overtake the rest of us. So if they could get the allegiance of all the other players on the game board, like their countries, to go along with them and say, come along with us. We're the United States. We'll give you a flag. We, we want to identify. We all want to be proud of our origins, right? That, that's, what, that's what flags and logos are, is pride in their origins. So when you go and put a dragon or something, which is essentially a snake on your logo, it's because you're proud of it, right? You don't put on your logo something you're hiding, unless in this case they put the dragon because they're hiding the fact that it's really a snake. See what I'm saying here? So yeah, so, uh, <laughs> well, I think they got everybody on the rest of the game board to cooperate with them, right? Because that would be the way they'd have to sell this, right? To get the Chinese people to agree with them, to get the um, African people to agree with them, the leaders I'm talking about, right? Um, because they literally kind of own all the people on the game board, right? Because the U.S. military has their bases all over the place and stuff. And, you know, they conquered these countries and these people by, you know, force and domination. They go into Africa, pay off leaders and stuff like that. So they, they use the same tactic over and over again. So that had to have been part of their recruiting process, right? Go around to the rest of the game board people and say, hey, you know, <laughs> we're going to take over the rest of the game board. So why don't you join us? And as part of your brotherhood, we're going to all get into this snake and dragon deal, and we're going to use this color red, and we're gonna, that's going to be our brotherhood, right? But I think what all these other countries probably are starting to realize right now, because maybe some of this talk about other countries going against the United States, maybe some of it's true, right? Um, maybe they're starting to see that they were terribly used. <laughs> and uh, they have some regrets, so because it appears to me that we've got a pretty racist organization going on here. They're really into this tricks, trickery and the magic and stuff. And I have to say that I believe that the U.S. flag and all those things, that that is a, we think it's an eagle, but really it's a, um, it's a phoenix. Plain and simple. I, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. So I'm going to close out for now. So be safe out there and goodbye for now.
what's on my mind, the latest with the um, U.S. government saying they had a leak. Well, I have to ask you this, okay? Um, Julian Assange <laughs> wasn't a leak, right? He's really not in prison. <laughs> He's a lying tranny. I actually had exchanged a few messages with his fake mother. And when you, if you're interested, go go watch these people. Like for example, Julian Assange's dad and his brother were on his book tour or something, and they're very they're very convincing the way they act like this is all real. Okay, Julian Assange is not real. That was supposedly a leak, right? Um, you know, they do these leaks because it's part of the good and bad and the magic deal, right? So they do these leaks to let people know what's really going on. And they do it in different ways, like they do it using people like Netflix to do these exploratory documentaries. So yeah, so, okay, so look at it this way. Is it fake or not? The newest one? I don't know. Well, I can tell you Julian Assange was, is, is not a real person, right? He's a royal actor. Um, Edward Snowden is a real royal actor. The whole NASA thing was a trick us of this Matrix business, so is the latest thing a leak? Hey, who knows? Likely it's just another trick because they're not that smart, okay? They have to use these same cut and paste over and over again. I don't know why very few people seem to catch this part. So let me close out with this song. I'll be quiet for now. And listen, as long as my fingers don't start falling off, I'll be back if I have something relevant to say. So here we go. Four. 